Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So, John, we're we're very fortunate to have some very dedicated listeners that um, that listen to our podcast on a regular basis. Thank you, listeners, to everyone who does, in fact, listen to uh, to the show on a regular basis. But we have a particular class of listener who, uh, well, they can be a bit problematic sometimes. And and I'm thinking specifically about someone who, you know, who shall remain unnamed, but I share a shop with. And uh, I, I did receive a, a little bit of late night follow up. Yeah, uh, someone was walking around the neighborhood listening to us. We we got a little bit of follow up about our gauge block talk the uh, on the last episode, specifically when it came to the units of force that we were talking about when uh, when we were talking about separating two gauge blocks that had been rung together. You want to uh, you want to explain what we did wrong there? I think the feedback was absolutely warranted, and, and, uh-huh. and my apologies to all the the engineers and, and physicists out there. <laughs> um, I said newton meters. I led the whole conversation astray, and, and you know, Chris followed up and said newton meters as well. That is a measure of, of torque, and I don't know if subliminally the the ringing motion of the blocks uh, led me off but it's just straight up newtons uh-huh. it is not a torque force at play every time we were talking about physically pulling the blocks apart yes which is a, a tension force and and that's just straight up good old-fashioned newtons and I, I hadn't even noticed it when you said it and i didn't even think about it again after i had edited it no, numerous times and and then of course our pedantic uh listeners brought it up to us so thank you very much mr lowen for our, our highly astute and well-informed. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, it was, the, but it was lying there at 1130 at night in my bed reading the news and, and, uh, and getting a text message saying, it's Newtons, not Newton meters. Anyways, thank you, Rich, for, uh, for bringing that to our attention. And my apologies to everyone. Uh, I'll get it right next time. It's, it's funny how you can have a slip of the tongue like that. One that I'm surprised I still hear like longtime vetted watchmakers make a slip of the tongue on from a time to time is just like hairspring and, and mainspring. I mean, they're two very, very different parts of the watch. No, I do it all the time. I have to think about that every single time I talk about the hairspring or the mainspring because in my brain, I don't know what it is, but I'm always mixing up the words for the two. I know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. And for whatever reason, my brain decides to spit the words out for the other one. It, it drives me crazy. But, you know, fortunately, that's something that I can edit out of the podcast and I can you know, because I usually catch myself and I edit out the slip. But yes, I, I do that constantly and I don't know why. Well, you're certainly not alone in it. I yeah. hear it all the time and I'm certain I've done it myself unknowingly. Yeah. I think it's because it's, you know, two simple, well-trod four-letter words followed by spring. Yes, yes, exactly. So it, it's very easy to do. Now, speaking of our listeners, uh, we, you know, we do have listeners who've been with us since day one and thank you very much to uh, to those of you who've listened to all uh, 75 episodes of us over the last three years. It's uh, it's nice that we've had uh, had people following along for so long. And I know that we've had uh, a number of people who've told me that they've they've gone back and listened to some of our back catalog and have, have enjoyed that. But uh, a shout out to uh, Robin Renzetti, who uh, this week on, on Instagram let me know that he's just recently gone back and listened to the entire 75 episode back catalog of Off Hours in while he was working in his shop. Uh, over the last few weeks, and uh, frankly, that that's uh, 
impressive. I, I'm not sure that it's it's something that I would recommend to anybody, but thank you very much, Robin. And uh, for those who don't know who Robin is, he has a, a great Instagram feed and YouTube channel that is really worth watching if you are interested in all things precision when it comes to machining. Uh, Robin has uh, is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to ultra-precision machining, certainly stuff far beyond what what we're doing even in, in watchmaking. And he's, he's very generous with uh, giving his knowledge out to the world through, uh, through the videos that he does both on Instagram and YouTube. Uh, so if, if this is the kind of thing that you're interested in, precision, and how to machine things in precise ways, uh, go over and check out Robin's um, Instagram feed and, and YouTube channel. We'll put links in the show notes. Uh, they really are worth watching. Uh, but realize that uh, you're you're in for a deep dive. It's uh, Robin is incredibly knowledgeable and is and really does um, does a great job of explaining what it is that he's doing and why it is that he's doing it. I'm I'm honored. Thank you, Robin. And uh, and speaking of machinists, we uh, the uh, my mostly tame machinist that I use here in town when I I don't know how to machine something or I need an answer. Uh, Paul Burberry, friend of the show. He's um, he's somebody, someone we've been uh, chatting about over the years and is, um, is currently working on a project for me to make some new pattern bars. We were thinking about trying to get him onto the show, so maybe in the next episode or two we'll, we'll have a conversation with Paul. And I'm uh, not sure exactly what we'll get up to talking about, but I'm sure we can, we can figure out some interesting things to uh, pick Paul's brain about. Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. Go all sorts of rabbit holes we could dive down talking machining for sure. So another bit of follow-up. You were uh, doing a bit of research or was it, what is it, experimentation possibly with, with laser engraving of, of sapphire this week? No, I, I didn't actually try doing any laser engraving. I was, I was uh, at home for a couple of days and, and bored watching movies. So I was, uh, I was doing some research on the interwebs and uh, looking into what's required to do uh, laser engraving on sapphire because that's something that we've sort of mused about over time. And uh, and a few watch companies are doing it regularly on their watches. We specifically we talked about Amiga and Rolex who who have their logos on the uh, the crystals. And uh, I was kind of curious to see whether or not uh, the fiber laser that I happen to have how close that was to being able to actually do that kind of work. And uh, two things that I was able to figure out from it, uh, I, I didn't find a lot of good information on you know, formulas and stuff like that for doing it. But uh, a couple of companies that are selling lasers specifically for doing this kind of work, uh, a few things that I noticed. The first is that the wavelength of light is completely different than what I'm using. Uh, I've got a, a 1,064 nanometer laser uh, in my fiber laser. And the lasers that are being used to engrave sapphire are in the 355 nanometer range. Uh, so very different wavelength of light. I don't, I'm not, you know, my optical physics knowledge is, is pretty low. So I don't know how much of a difference there is in that and, you know, whether there would be a way of getting around it just, you know, at a lower um, frequency like what I'm using. Uh, but I suspect not. Uh, I know that when you deal with the differences between, let's say, like a CO2 laser and a fiber laser like the, like the one that I've got, uh, you know, the CO2 lasers are the ones that are pretty common that people have, a lot of people have in their shop or uh, you know, at their local maker uh, space or whatever. And those are used for cutting paper and wood and leather and things like that. Uh, a lot of organics. Uh, that sort of thing is um, is a very different wavelength than the fiber lasers that I'm using. And 
I know that that wavelength change uh, allows you to impart significantly more energy into what it is that you're engraving. So I suspect that the change from 1064 up to 355 is probably, you know, a significant change in the amount of energy that you're actually distributing into that that area. So uh, that's the first thing. The, the, uh, the wavelength of light is very different. And then on top of that, they're using Q-switched lasers, uh, which allows you to make some changes to the pulse rate, I believe it is, um, of the laser. Uh, mine has a has a constant pulse width as I'm I can change it, but it, it's a constant one as I go. And uh, there are Q switch lasers that are in this kind of frequency that I've got, uh, and that allows you to do some fun things like doing different colors on stainless steel or or titanium and things like that. Like you can actually control. Uh, those colors actively so you can make like you know a bright yellow beside a blue beside a green or whatever on a stainless steel part so q-switch lasers are pretty cool and and it's sort of the next generation of the technology compared to the one that um, the one i've got right now Uh, but it's not really all that important for the stuff that i do so i you know i didn't consider it especially considering you're often paying a twenty thousand dollar premium for that that uh, q-switch technology the lasers that I, I saw, of course, none of them have price tags on them on the website. It's please call us for details if you have to ask. Yeah, so I, I suspect that they're pretty they're pretty pricey right now to do to do that kind of work. I don't know how flexible they are in doing other work, so uh, certainly not something that I'm planning on looking into uh, anytime in the near future from a price point of view. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's incredible how far laser technology has come in just mm-hmm. a little over half a century. Oh yeah, and, yeah. and what's particularly impressive to me is, is that Rolex has been laser etching their sapphire crystals since the mid 90s. So it's like going on 30 years yeah. now. Yeah, that leads me to believe that there's probably ways of doing it with, I'm not going to say more primitive laser technology. I, I don't think that's really the appropriate way of, of putting it, but um, earlier sort of generations of the technology. I mean, obviously the one that I'm running, it's become a more, more of a commodity type uh, tool. And so that's obviously gained off the the backs of what Rolex was doing 20 odd years ago. Um, so there probably are ways of doing it. It just may be incredibly inefficient or there may be, you know, serious limitations in how to do it or whatever. But um, yeah, if, um, if anybody out there is, is familiar with it or knows how to, how to laser engrave um, Sapphire with a, with a 1064 nanometer fiber laser, let me know. Uh, and I'll, I'll probably still give it a try at some point as well, just to see what actually happens and see if it, uh, you know, see if it if it actually can work. Um, from what I gather, I think that it, it, what it's doing is it's creating microfractures in the crystal structure, and so therefore diffusing the light that you've got going through there. And so you're also dealing with other problems because you don't want to put those little tiny fractures too close together, or else you will create a you know a large fracture line, and you'll then easily crack the part. You find people doing these um, photos, sort of floating photos in a, in an acrylic block or whatever. I have uh, one of those. Do you really have one of those? I have one of those. Yeah, don't, don't drop it. It's, uh, <laughs> the, it. That's all fracture lines that are in there that are causing those that photo to be created. And, uh, and I suspect it's probably a very similar thing that's happening with the sapphire. So you would want to make sure that your fracture points are very, very tiny. And so obviously as you go up in... Uh, in frequency, you're also decreasing the size of that laser point uh, and therefore, um, you know, being able to do a finer detail engraving in the uh, in the part. So, yeah, I, I, 
I would be surprised if it's something that I'm able to do with the uh, the laser that I've got. I had, I had no idea those were, were made of acrylic. Actually, I thought they were, were glass. Yeah, I, I've had a, a portrait of myself gifted to me for, for my 21st birthday years ago when mm. I was, was living in, in England and uh, actually had it done there in a little toy shop. Well, <laughs> little, little uh, it's kind of a wrong turn of phrase. But yeah. The biggest, most famous, most prolific toy shop in, in London, England, yeah. Hamley's. And uh, up there, like the second or third floor, they had mm-hmm. one of these little booths. Mm. And uh, you could get a scan of yourself done in, in 3D. Yeah. And then uh, you end up in, in one of these little little crystal... Blocks. Blocks, yeah. yeah. For, for lack of a better term. I actually thought it was quite neat because at the time I was writing a, a paper on the Parthenon marbles. And uh, some some scanning work that was done on those to to preserve them digitally. And the exact same techniques that they, they had used to to carry out those scans is what was blasted at me <laughs> in order to render me in these series yeah. of small points in in that crystal block. Mm-hmm. And uh, similar tech was actually used for, for the Matrix, too, and then some right. of the, the stuff that, that they pioneered yeah. doing these really neat... Bullet time three, stuff. Bullet and, time stuff, yeah, yeah. And, and sweeping through the cities and, and scenery yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, and and you know, I say that the they're acrylic blocks because these days that's that's what people tend to be using for it. But I do know that you know various glass blocks have been used for it as well. You just have to make sure that the crystal structure of it is solid. You know, the the a lot of people these days are doing them out of acrylic because that's obviously far less expensive than doing them out of out of glass. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if the one that you were, that you have is glass. Mm. Um, it certainly has heft to it that it, yeah. it is not acrylic in nature. Absolutely, yeah. It, so it's you know I don't mean to imply that that's the only thing that they're that they're being done with, but uh, certainly most people these days are doing it out of some kind of an acrylic just because it is far less expensive and probably easier to uh, to get that that crystalline structure that they need for the uh, for the laser mm-hmm. and because of the the limitations of, of the scanning technology that was being used I, I couldn't actually strike the precise pose that I wanted to <laughs> uh, because it, you have to be able to to see uh, all the dimensionality quite mm. easily yeah so if you were to do say a, a closed hand or you know try and put your hands in front of your face oh then sure. all of a sudden there's just going to be this gap right behind your hand where like your face is, is completely uh, not there sure. inside of the the render or the rendition that, that is done inside right. of the, the glass or, or the acrylic with all these little micro fractures hmm. and it's interesting too to, to to make this parallel it's not a connection i've ever made before but the insignia on the rolex crystals that that are done in sapphire uh, it's not straight lines it, it's point of list style the, sure. the exact same way that these images rendered inside these crystals are it's just these little tiny dots mm-hmm. that are made and then uh, so you join those all together in, in sort of the point of list style mm-hmm. of painting you stand far enough back yeah. and it becomes an image exactly uh, so it's the exact same thing with the insignia on these sapphire crystals it's a whole bunch of tiny little points in in the shape of a crown and then uh, if you happen to have your, your crystal replaced at some point, then you'll end up with a little tiny S down in the very bottom of the crown. Really? Um, yeah, just to signify that, that it is a replacement crystal. So yeah, it was a, a service crystal, uh, not, not original from when the, the watch left the factory. Oh, there you go. All right. I didn't know that. And speaking of machining as well, we finally cut some metal on Project Minotaur. Yeah, it was really nice. We uh, Monday night, we were able to actually sit down and start working on the movement itself. It went a little slower than I was hoping it would, mostly because we, we needed to troubleshoot a couple of problems and 
make a couple of little jigs and modify some tools and things like that. All the the kinds of things that you expect to have to do at the beginning of any project uh, that you haven't done before. So, uh, we but we spent a couple of hours drilling out the uh, the pinholes for the uh, the new bridges and cocks, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a good time. Mm-hmm. And, and it turned out your wobble stick was indeed just just a little too oh, long. Yeah, and I was expecting it to be too <laughs> long. A thirty six inch long wobble stick was a little ridiculous for uh, for one eighth inch uh, rod. Uh, so we did cut that down, and uh, I guess now it's probably somewhere in the 14 or 15-inch range uh, in terms of length. It's incredibly effective. Uh, I th- I still think it would be nice to have a longer one um, just to be able to get a little bit more accuracy on things like uh, jewel holes. It's certainly uh, it's certainly a nice tool to have, and it, it does take a little bit of getting used to, particularly on a small lathe and, you know, and a fiddly faceplate that neither of us are used to and things like that, but... Uh, it, it is incredibly effective at being able to, to center things. Mm-hmm. And I think if you were to go longer, you would have to get a a larger diameter shaft because yeah. even with it trimmed down, I'm still pretty sure it was picking up some, some resonance from, from Daft Punk playing in the background. <laughs> and, and that the bass from that alone what was serving up a, a minuscule amount of, of wobble yeah. as we were dialing it into yeah, perfection. It's, it's, it's certainly not the perfect workshop in terms of, of uh, stability of the machines and everything. Um, you know, the, this is on the second floor. It's, a, you know, it's a, just a joist floor that's underneath it, and it is a steel joist floor, but still it's a joist floor. The floor does bounce a little bit. You know, you get some music going and all of a sudden you can see little vibrations and things. So it is certainly not the absolute perfect place to do it. You know, if I could, I'd put it on the, you know, put it on a nice solid concrete pad. And, you know, although even then we, you know, we're right beside a major, a major roadway. So, uh, you know, you're still going to get vibrations mm-hmm. from, from traffic going by and things like that at, at certain levels. So, uh, but it, you know, it's certainly good enough for what, for what we were doing here. And, and it was easy enough to see when when we were still out a little bit and when we got it right on and, mm-hmm. and got it bang on. And with any long rod like that, even just sound waves will be enough oh, sure. to, to throw it off. I had a helicopter fly a little low overhead the week before yeah. last uh, at the house there. And it actually set off the chimes on my, my grandfather clock, <laughs> which uh, has never happened before. Well, that was a Chinook that went overhead, and I know that because I heard it over top of my music while I was in the shop. <laughs> I was working on a milling machine with with uh, noise canceling headphones in, and I could feel the the uh, the vibrations from that Chinook flying over top. Mm-hmm. It, it was palpable. I know that I was speaking to a an old school engine turner at one point who uh, did some work for him in London, and they had all sorts of problems with some of the really fine detailed engine turning work that they were doing, where. Uh, you know, having traffic outside was problematic. So there was certain work that they only did after hours when they didn't have people walking down the hallway. And, you know, there was certainly, that can certainly be problematic for you if you're doing very, very high precision work and, or something where you can see those vibrations like a, a super polished surface, which, uh, you know, which is what you're going to get out of, out of something like a a straight line cut. Yes. When you start to do any sort of really fine precision work and the, the smallest perturbances mm-hmm. can can start to to show up. Actually, a, a neat little anecdote that came up a couple months ago that was relayed on the Minutia Repeater podcast was David Walter dialed in one of these these clocks that he's working on to an incredible level of precision, uh, but he was noticing this, this sort of unusual deviation 
in in timekeeping that, that he just wasn't able to pinpoint what the root cause was and uh, you know he's got these clocks dialed into the point that they're that they're quite literally working like a richter's yeah. scale would in that it, it will actually pick up very small tremors and, and earthquakes and even just the shocks from far off uh, earthquakes uh, will show up in in the timekeeping and the, and the rate of, of the clock and he's fairly accustomed to to noting these these sorts of things and, and being able to attribute different deviations in, in timekeeping uh, but one that was niggling at him uh, turned out to be just uh, someone going to to work in uh, their their big boxy SUV uh, every day at the the same time and, and it was just showing up as a, a blip mm-hmm. on, on his timing machine and just that turning the, the corner by his house that vehicle and its engine was was just big enough to to cause uh, some trouble for, for the the timekeeping on that piece yeah, it it certainly can be can be problematic, and it's one of the reasons I haven't done a lot of engine turning in the last few years, uh, because the engines were living in my living room, and uh, again, sprung floor, and uh, they just anytime you got them going, the whole floor bounced, and you could see the vibrations from the floor, uh, you know, show up in the cuts that you were working on. So it's uh, it's something that you have to be concerned with. A lot of the stuff that I do, it's it's just not an issue. I don't, you know, it's not enough of a problem as long as the floor is stable enough to be able to, um, you know, to do the thing that you're doing then, uh, or to hold the machine that you're working with. It's, uh, you know, that's going to be fine. But for for some things, especially the engine turning work, that that's hugely problematic for me. So you would actually pick up perturbations in the the patterns that you were creating when, when that would start to happen oh yeah absolutely hmm. um so i i like to listen to music when i'm engine turning I, I like to be able to sort of drown out what else is going on around me um just because it's it's very very easy to cause to to make mistakes while you're counting and and um you know your if your pattern is off by a couple thou it's it's obvious in in an engine turn piece uh so i like to listen to music and sort of drown out the rest of the world and I I have to listen to it on headphones because otherwise, um, you know, even if I've got it on music on quietly, uh, it's enough that I can pick it up in in the uh, the parts that I mentioned turning. So you can actually see the little vibrations in the in the cuts as you're as you're looking at it under a loop. And certainly, it's it's something that you have to be cautious of and be conscious of when you're when you're doing certain types of work like that. It actually, makes a lot of sense because you are, in effect, you know, cutting a record. Yeah, right? it's just yeah. like vinyl records. That's, yeah. that's exactly how they work. Absolutely, uh, it's just picking up the, those slight variations in in the air that's caused by sound, and and relaying that into a physical solid. Yeah, in this case, the the needle is eleven hundred pounds and of <laughs> cast iron, and <laughs> and the uh, the record is a very a very very highly polished surface that that's showing up in your uh, in your cut, but it certainly does show up now. This is one of the reasons why I suspect a lot of um, watchmakers, uh, especially classic watchmakers like Breguet, were actually frosting their engine turn dials. And one of the one of the things that happens when you frost your dial like that is that you actually lose a lot of that detail. And because it's no longer a very highly polished surface that you're seeing in there, uh, you don't actually see all those tiny little vibrations that show up in the um, in the engine turn cut. So I, I suspect one of the reasons. I mean, today people do it because that's the classic brigade look it also helps with preventing it from oxidizing more 
but on top of that, I suspect a lot of that was done to uh, hide some of those little deviations in the uh, in the cuts. I just a uh, point of clarification for my my own curiosity when you use the the term frosting there yeah. on Breguet's dials. Uh, that's not a, a term I've, that I've heard used applied uh, to his his work before. He's using that term sort of interchangeably with with bleaching. Or is that a sort of common turn of phrase in, within engine turning and, and guilloche work? No, I'm I'm referring to it for that way because that's sort of what, what a lot of jewelers would call it. And I've heard jewelers referring to it as, as frosting. But you're right, bleaching is the same same idea uh, where you're taking, in this case, typically what you're doing is you're heating the dial and then you're putting it into uh, a pickle solution, an acid solution. And, um, and there you're actually bleaching out a lot of the metals that are at the surface. But the the other side effect of that is that you're also dulling the surface. You're taking it from a very high polish down to um, down to a lower polish, just because of the the reactions that you're getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there is any copper in the metal that you're working with, a lot of dials are being made out of fine silver, so there probably isn't going to be a lot of copper. But typically, that's going to get pulled to the surface as part of the heating, and then the acid solution, the pickle that you're using is actually going to dissolve those copper that copper from the surface and you're then going to end up with a pure a pure silver dial there. Uh, this is one of the techniques that a lot of enamelists use when they're enameling sterling silver. Uh, so sterling has uh, 7.5% copper in it and typically you want to be enameling on top of pure silver. And so a lot of people will do this bleaching technique, this frosting technique, whatever you want to call it. And uh, they'll actually repeatedly heat the heat the part uh, and then put it into into a pickle solution and they'll they'll actually bleach that um, that out uh, you'll also see people do this to remove fire scale which is sort of a a dark gray uh, modeled um, sort of stain that you see on sterling silver and that's something that you get when you don't um, protect it properly from oxygen when you're heating it uh, so it's actually um, a uh, sulfur oxide that's being formed on the silver. And again, with the bleaching process, you can actually bleach out some of that uh, that oxide and you can get back to a fine silver uh, surface. And so um, a lot of people who do raised work, like um, uh, hammer work, where they're actually raising uh, volumes out of out of sheet silver, uh, again, they're, they're not necessarily going to cover the entire piece with um you know with flux or something like that while they're or borax or something like that while they're uh, they're heating it and so in you know to avoid the problem of the of the fire scale they'll go in and they'll bleach it afterwards so they don't have to deal with that so have you ever bleached any of your guilloche work or do you always leave that bright clean cut i i have done it to see what it looks like and i'm not a big fan of the look of it uh so my stuff will probably not be bleached. Uh, I know that's the classic look and I know that's what a lot of people are doing, but I probably won't be bleaching mine all. Uh, I am going to do some other work on the rest of the dial in order to distinguish things like the chapter ring from the engine turning and get a texture difference as well as um, uh, probably a reflective difference. It's not going to be quite as shiny, uh, but I don't think I'm going to be bleaching mine. So using the wobble stick certainly wasn't as expedient as you know using a precision drill press or a precision mill would have been for drilling out the holes. Mm-hmm. In terms of the tools that were at our disposal in the moment, this was by far the most precise way to go about drilling these holes. And uh, it was very time-consuming. You're certainly not going yeah. to mass-produce <laughs> any watches uh, using a wobble stick. Uh, but it, it was great to, to get back in there and 
do this again. I probably doubled the number of times I've, I've used a faceplate <laughs> in my life yeah. uh, doing just this one task for the number of holes that, sure. that we had to, to drill out. And typically I'm, I'm just centering a, a jewel up and doing some work or, or a bushing mm-hmm. or something like that just to, to do a repair or some restoration work. Uh, but it is actually quite infrequent that, I, that I've needed to use a, a faceplate for a lot of the work I've done over the years. Mm. Um, so it was great to to get in there and, and, and to do that. Yeah. And uh, two little machinist techniques or, or tips that uh, you brought to the table that I, I appreciate and uh, I think worth sharing for, for anyone else out there who might not have thought to do these things was, uh, one, uh, for the the reference for the wobble stick, you actually used a, a machinist square. Yeah. And and I think part of the reason I never thought to do this is because the machinist squares that I have are so petite, <laughs> almost like play toys compared to a lot of the machinist squares uh, that, that you have around the shop. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think my largest one's about five inches. Mm. Uh, but you have... Slightly larger ones. Just a little bigger. <laughs> um, and uh, you set this up on its side to use that as the reference point. Mm-hmm. Whereas I have always just used a a metal ruler in the past sure. and I physically hold the ruler in place sure. while I, I work at figuring out, you know, where I need to, to make my next adjustment. I'll set the ruler down, yeah. make, make my few little taps and set the ruler back I was going to say, that's great if you have hand. three or four hands, but if yeah. you've only got two hands like normal <laughs> no, people. It's, it's totally feasible. It's, it's totally doable. Yeah, but you, don't, you can't thing. see what you're working on as you're doing <laughs> it, right? The nice thing about having a, a stable reference point like the, the machina square is the fact that you can actually see what's going on as you're working and you can tap it you don't have to sit there and go and hold the hold the the scale up and then go and turn your your headstock and then go back and and do it like that like it's nice to have a a stable thing that's there uh to to have as a reference point mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and, and you're planning to take it a step further too yeah one of the things i, th- I decided as was that uh i've got this nice laser engraver downstairs uh why not uh laser engrave a scale onto it so I'm uh, I'm experimenting with a couple of different uh, sort of target designs uh, with um, graduations on it. Uh, so there's a couple of circles with crosshairs on it, and then some little um, little lines delineating um, different distances from the center of it. And uh, we'll see. Mostly, I'm not so worried about how exactly how far apart they are. I mean, they happen to be one millimeter apart uh, for most of the scale, and then a half millimeter apart at the uh, the very center. Uh, but the the actual distance that they are from each other is kind of unimportant. It's more that they are consistently separated and they present a nice point of reference. Mm. So you can actually see the point of your wobble stick as it's being, you know, as it's wobbling back and forth in front of the scale. Uh, so that that should make things a little bit easier. Yeah, I think scale could be a bit of a misleading term there. <laughs> so you used it twice, and, and your description was a little more on point. But mm. yeah, I. Do- it's more akin to say a, a bullseye or a gun sight. Yeah, it's it's more describing. like a yeah, it's it's more like uh, the overlay that you see in uh, in a scope on a rifle, for instance, um, where you're actually getting um, you know getting these little these little deviations from the center and uh, as you're going both horizontally and vertically, uh, because the wobble stick does deviate both horizontally and vertically, so it's nice to be able to see see that that deviation. And depending on what it is that you're doing and what you're most comfortable with, it's sometimes it's easier to look down on the top of the wobble stick and see it deviating side to side. And sometimes it's easier to look from the side and see it going up and down, just whatever, you know, whatever you're most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, the, the other 
points. I, I quite appreciate it. Uh, it was from all of your, your years centering things in a, a four-jaw chuck. I have always just targeted the, the lowest point uh, of the wobble stick and, and made my adjustments from there. Uh, but you pointed out that you know you could wind up chasing your tail quite a bit doing that. And it's actually far more expedient to just work at 180 degrees from mm-hmm. from each other and and just check through those two points. Don't worry about anywhere else, and it doesn't matter about the the side to side. Just focus on on those two points. And once you as you dial in those two points, you're going to just pull everything in in together quite a bit faster. And then worry about fine tuning your your 90 degree angles from there, rather yeah. than always chasing that lowest point. Yeah, one of the things that I learned early on with a four jaw chuck is that if you if you imagine you've got uh, four four different jaws that you can independently adjust on a four jaw chuck. And if you imagine they're they're labeled one, two, three, four, uh, let's say clockwise, you're best off adjusting, let's say one and three, because they're uh, opposing jaws. You're, you're better off adjusting those two, getting it centered in between those two jaws, and then, or at least very close, and then going to two and four and adjusting those and then you can go back afterwards and go back to one and three if you need to and and get close again. One of the nice things about about working on just a single axis like that is that when you when you get very close to it, you actually know where it's going to be, you know, where that center point is. Now, in our case, we're using a wobble stick, so that center point is obvious because it's you know, it's not moving around anymore. But uh, when I'm working on a on a four jaw chuck, typically I have a dial indicator that I'm working with. And when you first start using the dial indicator, you don't know where your zero point is. But once you've la- once you've sort of centered one axis, you now know where zero is, which then makes it much faster for you to adjust the other axis because now you know on the dial indicator what zero is and what you need to target. And so you can then very quickly move it into alignment. And uh, yeah, it's a much faster process than uh, than trying to chase around one and then two and then three and then four and then you you can spend a long time chasing that around like that. Mm. I think part of the reason that something that never occurred to me clearly is because I never worked in a machinist shop. Mm. Uh, but but the other reason too is I'm usually working with round plates. Yes. And uh, one of the nice things about working on the this sort of 180 degree axis, single axis, was that we actually had a, a square plate affixed mm-hmm. to a round plate. So you, you just chose your axis based <laughs> on a flat edge and it yeah. gave you a very nice surface to to gently tap down on to to dial in that that perfect concentricity. Yeah, the the square plates that we're working on the they are the plates that are going to eventually become the new bridges and cocks on the this watch and yeah, they they're still square. It's easy to to use those as the reference points. Uh, but even if it wasn't uh, even if this had been a perfectly round piece, uh, I would have, you know, possibly marked on the the faceplate where mm-hmm. the uh, where the four points were. And I still would have worked like that because it is much easier to do that. And uh, and that way you're not sort of sitting there chasing around. And, you know, it's it's worthwhile picking, let's say, the low point as as one of your one of your axes. But from there, you want to work across from it and uh, and continue doing that until you uh, until you're able to dial in at least one one direction. And then you can get to the uh, the next one. And it, it goes a little faster that way. We've we've talked a little bit about the wobble stick and and what it does and why it's useful, but uh, we did run into a situation where the wobble stick didn't actually help us out. Yes, this is quite a common problem when working with a, a main plate, even just when installing and extracting jewels and, and other fairly common tasks. Is sometimes you'll have an area where 
you don't have a flat surface to to work on the the jewel hole. Mm-hmm. Now, generally speaking, in well designed calibers, at least one side of the main plate will have a, a nice surface for you to to rest your your tool flat up against to to work on the jewel or the the hole in a precise manner. One of the the holes that we uh, needed to, to drill out was in a place where halfway through the hole uh, had been milled out a, a section of, of material. So mm-hmm. we didn't have a, a full circumference to work off of for the, the wobble stick. Um, so the, the route we tried at, at first was just to use something from the staking set to get that as close as possible to, to being centered on the, the faceplate. And that got close, but not quite close enough. Yeah, the the staking set that I have, I didn't have anything that had a nice square-sided shoulder to it, um, you know, that would fit in there. Uh, so we were using something that had a taper to it, and a taper just wasn't quite it's enough. It wasn't not ideal for the job. No, a, a taper isn't really a great thing. Like the, in that case, to uh, to center something up, so that that really didn't quite work out perfectly. So then Chris ended up machining a specific piece of, of drill rod for the purpose, which is, is what I had had in mind yeah. uh, when I had first recommended using the, the staking set, because uh, some of the staking sets uh, I have at my disposal, but not they were not close at hand at the time. I have a, a straight shoulder on them, and they come down to a, a very fine point. Mm. Uh, so Chris was able to, to grind, actually, on, on his precision grinder, a, a very precise shaft and he was able to use that in order to to get that hole centered in the faceplate and then we could drill through mm. uh, to the the accompanying side where uh, a new pin would be placed in the, yeah. the accompanying bridge yeah it's it's nice having access in this case i was using a tool and cutter grinder which isn't something that a lot of people have access to anymore but they're they're relatively common and these tool and cutter grinders are great if you're uh if you're trying to do work like this uh i use them all the time for grinding uh lathe tools and uh and also end mills occasionally if i need to to make a you know either sharpen an end mill or maybe make something that's a little bit more custom um and uh, in this case it was great it's very easy for me to be able to make uh things like dead centers with it or uh or make a a straight-sided pin that was exactly a millimeter in diameter so it was very very easy for me to go in there and do that and uh and make that I didn't end up hardening this one, but I, th- I think I'm going to go back and uh, and regrind uh, regrind it and actually harden it because I, now that I've seen it in action, it's going to do exactly what I need it to do, and it'll be useful in the future for other kinds of work like this, where you know maybe I, I need to be able to get in there to uh, uh, a one millimeter hole and actually center it properly. I wouldn't. I'm not sure that I would use that as a way of centering, let's say, a jewel hole. Uh, I, I don't think it would be mm-hmm. quite accurate enough for a jewel hole, but for this kind of work with a pin. Uh, where we're we're enlarging the hole that's there, and we're drilling into the the fresh metal in behind for the location for the new pin. It works out fine in this case because we're drilling both holes simultaneously. They are co-located and concentric, and we don't have to worry about it from that point of view. Um, it, you know, again, if we're if we're going into uh, a jewel hole, or if we were trying to line up with an existing hole to drill a new one. Uh, for a jewel, I I wouldn't trust it, but for this, it was fine. It was it gave us a level of accuracy that I'm comfortable with. And you can see if you if you look at it with a with a loop, you can see that it's just ever so slightly off. But again, it won't be a problem because the the pin will line up perfectly with this new hole that we've managed to uh, to enlarge. Another nice little tip in this vein as well 
just to, to save time working with the, the tailstock, is to make little helper tools like this out of rod that's the exact same diameter as the, the drill bits that mm-hmm. you're using. Uh, so all the tungsten carbide bits we're using have an eighth inch shank on them. And so making these other little pieces, you can just slide right in there and, and not have to worry about changing out the, the collet. Uh, it was nice uh, to expedite things along as well. Anything from like a, a centering rod to a, a custom tailored. I want to say jig. Is jig appropriate in this? Yeah, it, this it is. A, it is a jig. A, a, pin. a custom tailored jig or, yeah. or pin or, or gauge pin in in this particular case. Yeah, when one of the things that I found, especially with this lathe, the the Derbyshire lathe. It, this is the seven fifty model. Uh, all of the Derbyshire lathes are, are similar. They they use a collet in the tailstock as well as in the headstock, uh, which is nice because it means that you can get very, very precise holding in the tailstock. And uh, if you're going to be using a collet system like that, you don't want to be changing collets all the time. And so you don't want to go from one collet for your drill bits to a different collet for your dead center to a different collet for your little jig that you've made to to hold a one millimeter hole precisely. In this case, I you know I've got one eighth inch drill rod that is convenient, and you know I've got ten feet of it or whatever that I can quickly make up little four or five inch long pools, and they all fit into the eighth inch uh, collet, which is what these these PCB drills are are all shanked to, and uh, and it just makes life very very simple. And um, and certainly a lot faster when it comes to working on things. I've got another dead center which I've ground off of an eight millimeter rod, and the reason for that is because that eight millimeter rod is is the same rod that I'm using for something else, like for another tool that I put in that tailstock. So I want to be able to quickly swap out those tools without needing to swap out the um, the collet as well. If you're working on a larger lathe, a lot of people in larger lathes they don't have collets in their tailstocks; they have uh, Jacobs chucks. And um, and that's not so bad because you can just quickly open up the Jacobs chuck and change out the the bit from one to another. Maybe it's a a centering drill, and then go to your normal drill, and then maybe to your reamer, and you know you can bounce between them because that Jacobs chuck is easy enough to to swap out. Uh, but when you're starting to get into more precision work, a Jacobs chuck just isn't going to to be accurate enough for the work holding that we're doing in uh, in the tailstock. And I have to say too, your work on the the tripan posts paid off handsomely or to mm-hmm. the tripan tool holders for fitting onto the tripan post uh it was just uh, delightful in the you don't even notice it sense mm-hmm. of of delight as just just work was excellent for being able to just easily take the the wobble stick on and off of the the cross slide and uh just just made working with it that much more fun yeah, once you start working with a quick change tool post, it's tough to go back to anything else and uh, you know I've worked on lantern tool posts I've worked on uh, you know, on just, you know, rests with your, where you're just using a hand graver on, on, on a lathe. And, uh, they, they certainly all have their advantages and, and disadvantages, but the, the biggest advantage with the quick change tool post is just effortlessly swapping between tools and not needing to worry about, is this thing centered again? Is it in the right spot? And, and, uh, and that, that does make life so much easier. And, and having the wobble stick on that, on one of those tool posts was really nice too. I was, uh, you know, I did put a lot of work into making that wobble stick so that it would be interchangeable like that. I didn't need to use a little, you know, a little rest or whatever. And uh, and I think that paid off. I think it uh, it helped with, with speeding up the process and uh, certainly was easy to use. 
I think there were a few little things you, you picked up on though that you might do a little differently uh, if you were to, to make a version 2. Well, I certainly will be making a, a version two of it, and I, I, I haven't quite decided what I want to what I want to change up on it yet. I'm I still need to do a little bit of work with it, I think, to before I make the final changes to it. But certainly, there will be another version of this before I. Uh, I'll probably do a video on it at some point and about how I made this and, and what it looks like. But certainly, there'll be a couple of changes to it when I uh, when I do the next version of it. And and speaking of that, it's it was certainly interesting doing a lot of work on this lathe. So. This is a again. This is a much smaller lathe than what I typically work on. It's something that I, I've worked on before, but I've I've usually been doing a single setup. So maybe it's uh, turning a pin or you know turning a new staff or something like that. Something which didn't need a lot of different sort of accessories on and off the lathe. And something that we had to do quite a bit on this was to swap out different things. Whether it was the the wobble stick, whether it was the cross slide, whether it was the tailstock. Uh, you know, the, we couldn't keep the tailstock on while we were using the wobble stick because the wobble stick was long enough that it was extending past the end of the leg, the lathe bed. Uh, these are things that I'm, I'm not used to having to deal with because on my larger lathes, it's easy for me to just slide the, you know, the tailstock 20 plus inches away from the headstock. And I'm not worried about it interfering with the cross slide. Or when I bring the tailstock in, the tail, you know, the cross slide doesn't get in my way because it's, you know, it's designed to stay out of the way of my tailstock. So it was certainly an interesting experience working with so many different accessories on this lathe and the challenges of working on such a small lathe. And it's certainly doable, but it it definitely slows you down as well. It's interesting for me to hear that perspective because I'm coming at it from from the complete opposite <laughs> side of, the, of that spectrum where yeah. this lathe was uh, notably bigger than what I'm accustomed to working on because right. I'm usually working on an eight millimeter watchmaker's lathe. Right. Whereas this is a a lathe that has, has 10 millimeter collets on it mm-hmm. and uh, like the the bed everything about it is just substantially yeah. bigger than, than what i'm used to working on uh, and you know that's substantial on a, a watchmaker's scale because <laughs> if you know walk downstairs and look at some of the other <laughs> lathes that you, you have at your disposal uh it's a totally different ballgame it's not very significant in terms of difference when you compare it to the let's say the 16 inch south bend that i've got downstairs mm-hmm. um you know obviously that's a, a dramatically larger lathe but still, it, it, that extra little bit of, of space that you get, the longer bed, the wider bed, uh, you know, larger collets, you know, I can, like I, the maximum size that I can hold in my 10 millimeter collets is actually eight millimeters. So I can actually put an eight millimeter collet into my largest, uh, you know, into my largest collet Your and hold it. can eat my collets for life. They certainly can, yeah. Which is, you know, again, and that that extra little bit of space, it, it makes a difference. Um you do end up with, you know, slightly fewer problems when it comes with run out and things like that as well, because you're, you've got a little bit more material to grab onto and stuff. So there, there are a bunch of advantages to having a slightly larger size, and uh, I can certainly understand why a lot of watchmakers love the Shoblin 102 as a as a workhorse mm-hmm. lathe. It's certainly larger than than you technically need. Uh, you know, it's it's very similar in size to my Cromwell, which I work on a lot. But I can understand exactly why people go for the Shoblin 102 versus the Shoblin 70, because the Shoblin 70 is very similar in size to my uh, my Derbyshire lathe, and you know that's a that's a fair difference in in size between the 102 and the 70, and uh, just getting that extra space to work on, you know, again not having to remove the the tailstock when you're working you know, leaving, being able to leave the cross slide in place when you're, when you're working with the tailstock, 
all those little things make a, you know, add up to a, a huge time savings as you're working. And on top of that, you also get more rigidity, which means you're going to get more accuracy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, and the, the dials are easier to read because they're larger. And, uh, you know, the, the handles are a little bit nicer to work on because they're, they're larger. All those little things really add up to, to having uh, a, a more pleasant experience as you're working on these bigger machines. Again, so, somewhat funny coming from the, from the opposite side. Hearing <laughs> you say extra space, extra space, extra space. Whereas I, I've never felt so cramped trying to maneuver things. Uh, uh, the little knobs on on the back of the, the faceplate. The yeah, it's it's funny because the faceplate that's actually on here was originally mounted on an eight millimeter collet, and uh, I picked it up off of eBay, and it was designed for uh, you know it is a Derbyshire lathe chuck, but it's it was mounted on an eight millimeter collet. And I've made a new collet for it to to get it onto this one, uh, but I I didn't quite appreciate how little space there was between the face of the collet chuck and the headstock itself. Again, I'm I'm used to working on a bigger machine where there's a lot more space back there. Uh, most of the the bigger machines I have are also threaded in order to be able to accept chucks uh, that you screw on something like a a three jaw or a four jaw chuck, let's say. And uh, and so there's a lot more space in behind the, you know, the faceplate than than there is on the Derbyshire. So I, I need to make a new collet for the back of this in order to uh, give us a little bit more working room. Because you're right, it is uh, it is very cramped back there with the uh, the existing setup. But we got by. I'd call this this first round a, a success. Yeah, and you know something that Rich and I were talking about the other day was was the you know what are we hoping to get out of this process and do we plan on doing you know, a lot of watches like this. And, and I think the first, the first thing to say is, no, I, I certainly don't plan on trying to make a lot of watches like this. You but, can't make a lot of watches like this. <laughs> you're right. You can't. It, it is, it is very slow and it, it's a, it is nice to, to, to do it this way. Like it is nice to see how can you make a precision machine, a watch with a relatively primitive setup, something that you could set up in you know, a closet or a spare bedroom or, or whatever. Right. And, and so you, you know, you could understand how a watchmaker 200 years ago would be able to actually make a precise machine in a relatively small setup in their, you know, in a, in a small back room or whatever in their, in their farmhouse. So it is nice to be able to see how that works and to know that if, if I needed to, you know, I could set this up on a bench in in a spare room and actually be able to make a watch out of it. I, again, it's not something that I would want to try and make more than a couple of. Uh, it's certainly slower, and um, and there are a few things that we'll be changing up in order to make a couple of these in the future. Uh, as we as we finish some of our experiments, uh, I think we do want to try and make uh, make more than just one or two of of any of these movements. And uh, there certainly are a few things that we can do to to speed up that process in the future. Mm-hmm. And even though we, you know, there are things that we can do to speed up that process, it, it's still we'll still be able to maintain the sort of the feel of making these watches individually and sort of quote unquote by hand. You know, we can do things like using a pantograph in order to, to cut out the bridges instead of cutting them out by hand with a jeweler saw. Uh, you know, we can use a, a drilling machine to speed up drilling some of these holes that we're working on. Uh, not necessarily, you know, we don't need to necessarily go all the way into CNC machining to be able to, to do this stuff. There are ways of using manual machines to be able to speed up that that manufacturing process, so in you know we can sort of produce a small serial number of watches at a time, uh, while still 
maintaining that that essence of what it is that we're doing. Certainly for the better part of a, a century or a century or more, really, that that's how the watch industry operated. Mm-hmm. Those CNC machines didn't debut until we had computers yeah. to numerically control machines. Yeah. Uh, they, they didn't exist before. So there are all manner of, of tools and, and operations that were done old school. And and it is it is nice to see how those worked and, and to see how how to to actually get to that level of accuracy and because we we think of today's precision machines and we're like well how the heck could you possibly you know work on a a relatively primitive lathe and get a precise thing but when you start learning about things like turning between dead centers and uh, using face plates and wobble sticks and things like that you start to very quickly realize oh okay there there are ways of being able to actually do this work and and be able to work precisely as long as you are intentional about what you're doing and you understand exactly where the inaccuracies are going to come from the work that you're doing. Mm. Yeah, you're not going to achieve the the speed and precise repeatability of, of a, something like you'd get from a, a pressy tram. Sure. But you are still able to, with time and, and patience, yeah. get very precise results using very primitive tools. Yeah, Absolutely. And and it certainly shows me that the people who are interested in trying to do some of this work at, at home in their home shop or whatever, it, it's certainly doable. There are, you know, eight millimeter watch lathes are certainly common enough on the internet. You can find a reasonable one on eBay. You know, the the tooling that we're using, I you know, again, I'm using a, a 10 millimeter lathe, but you don't need to. You could use an eight millimeter lathe. Uh, you know, I have some nice machines for being able to make my life easier when I'm when I'm working. But they're certainly not necessary. You could you could easily do this work in a spare bedroom with uh, with more primitive machines. Don't even need an electric motor. You could use a you could even use a bow driven lathe or bow driven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So next up, we'll be turning up some pins to mm-hmm. to put in these these holes that we've we've just drilled. And uh, where do you want to take things from there? Yeah. Once we've managed to get the pins uh, turned up, we first off we can separate the two plates. Now we we had actually glued them together using uh, CA glue. And now that we've drilled the holes for the pins, uh, we can actually separate those, turn up some pins, and uh, and insert the pins into the new bridges and plates. And then from there, the next thing we need are holes for the screws, uh, because we need to be able to screw these plates together and hold them together for some of the future work. Things like, uh, well, separating the bridges, because at that point we can then start talking about cutting the bridges uh, into separate segments. And uh, and then we can start going down the rabbit hole of things like jewel holes and, and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, the, the next step is is pins so that we can hold them together, hold the plates together and reference them against each other appropriately. But uh, we need to be able to hold those things together. So um, we'll definitely be drilling out some uh, some screw holes. And the nice thing about these ones is that these are just clearance holes. Uh, we don't need to worry about tapping these holes uh, because tapping at, um, at the scale, as we've mentioned before, can be fun. Uh, but these are really just clearance holes and um, also some uh, countersinks so that we can have somewhere for the head of the screw to be able to uh, to sit inside of that um, that plate. Well, thankfully, as far as watches go, these are, are quite large screws. Oh, yeah. so it wouldn't have been too bad tapping these holes. It would have been no, no, no. Fairly straightforward. Uh, but uh, we will certainly be getting uh, more intimate with the, the wobble stick once again. Yeah. Plenty, of, plenty more holes to drill. There are a couple of holes that we will have to drill and tap at some point, uh, including a reverse thread, uh, which will be interesting. I've uh, It's been a while since I've done a reverse thread with a tap, and uh, this one is significantly smaller than the last one that I did. 
So uh, we'll see if I manage to uh, snap a tap just because I managed to turn it in the wrong direction. It'll be interesting. And, and again, as you say, a lot of a lot of wobble stick work coming up as well. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.